Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, everybody. I pray that you are doing wonderful. Welcome back to another episode. This is episode 25 on our 18th series on the topic of salvation. Today's episode is gonna all gonna be all about how God's work is entirely, entirely for you, for us. The super abundant love that God came to give us was not to denigrate God, but was to lift us up into his very nature. And so that's what today's episode is going to be all about. And that is a understatement. So it's going to be a beautiful reflection on the what the incarnation is, the nature of God, the incarnation, and what Christ's work is for us. Um, so let's first, as we always do in these series, I shouldn't say always, I think we started doing that like halfway through the series and realizing how many episodes this was going to have. But let's do an overview to see where we have uh, been in the past on this series of salvation. So we started out in this topic or this series of salvation talking about the gospel. Why is God on a cross? How Christ came to re- restore right order and right relationship. A taste and see, a personal invitation for each of us to respond to the grace of God. And then we talked about grace. We talked about saving faith and how we're saved and judged by love. We talked about our consciences and how it can accuse or excuse us. We talked about heaven, hell, purgatory. We talked about the question, are you saved? So the topic of salvation, justification, righteousness, all that good stuff. We talked about free will, predestination, and the sovereignty of God. We talked about the sin, the slavery of humanity. We talked about penances and mortifications and and indulgences in the Christian life. We talked about understanding suffering. We talked about the devil, your adversary, the devil. And then the last two episodes, there was a part one and a part two, is your advocate, the Holy Spirit. So that's where we have been in the past. And this brings us to today. We're going to be talking about how literally all of God's work is entirely for us, not himself entirely for you, not God. And the reason that this came up is because the next episode or two are going to be about these uh, views in non-Catholic Christian circles, not all of them, but some of them, about penal substitution, that, that God the Father either turned his back on Jesus or poured out his wrath on Jesus. So we're going to be talking about that explicitly in the next episode or two. But while thinking about that, it also made me realize that if one were to believe in those views about the the penal substitution of the father pouring his wrath on Jesus or the father turning his back on Jesus, not only only are those philosophical, Trinitarian, biblical, and traditional historical heresies, but it's also a very uh, complete and utterly (laughs) a sad way and a false view of the very nature of God, the nature of the Trinity, and what Christ came to do. And so I think uh, talking about this and really reflecting on the very nature of God, the incarnation and his crucifixion and all the things that God has done for us, and this is going to be kind of the foundation of our understanding of God and what Christ's work has really powerfully done in humanity. And so uh, I'll do an overview of what we're going to be talking about really, but really the summary of this entire thing is that Christ, and we had this on our last uh, Always More Wednesday episode, they try to kind of work together in, in some way, but how Christ elevates all of humanity. Divinity does not change. Christ elevates all of humanity. So God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. If he needed something, then he, we're not talking about God. But all of Christ's work is a complete and utter, entire, full gift for every single human being. So Christ's incarnation and crucifixion was not to give God something, but to give us all of himself. 
that's kind of the summary of it. But we're going to be getting into um, just a summary of what we're going to be talking about in a little bit more detail today is God doesn't need anything philosophically and biblically. And the only thing that we really can offer back to God is ourselves and all of creation because it's coming from him and goes back to him because he is goodness, truth, beauty itself. And then we're also going to be doing a deep dive on the incarnation. We're going to be talking about fitting, ver- fitting versus necessary. So people think it, like it was not necessary what God did for us in Jesus through the cross. Like he could have just forgiven us. But we're going to be talking about its ne- necessity and salvation history and God's promises to the Jewish people. But also its fittingness for all of those reasons, particularly within the Catholic faith because it lifts up Judaism. It's the fulfillment of all Judaism. And uh, we talked about that last time again in our Always More Wednesday episode about Christ lifting lifting up humanity. He also lifts up Israel in the Catholic faith and the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, this Eucharistic covenantal church um, in Jesus. And then we're going to be talking about how all of that works into the view of salvation and all the things that that Christ tells us to do. Um, It's not empty things to, it's not just commandments to simply you know, just show that we're followers of him, but it's actually, he gives us the grace to do it. And there's actually grace in it. And he pours out his grace upon us. And then we're going to be talking about a little bit of the sacramental reality. Then we'll end off about, uh, Christ and him crucified. And so, and this is all that he came to do for us. So let's start off the top. So God does not need anything. When we are talking about God, we are not talking about another creature, another big person out there. No, we are talking about a eternal reality that is truth, beauty, goodness, and fully revealed as love itself. So God is love through and through, but also even philosophically, how the the Jewish people had a very, very unique view about God is that he is one, where all the other pagan religions are that there are plenty of gods and they fight and they quarrel and they, uh, and, and all of these things, they have like actual feelings and they need to eat and they need certain things. But the Jewish God, didn't need anything. He created everything, uh, all, all, all of time, history, space, all of creation, visible and invisible. He made all of it. He made all of it to share, for us to share in his creation, his glory, his love. And he doesn't need anything. And the same thing philosophically, when you go back to even just uh, like Aristotle and Plato, how they came to the conclusion that there's one God. In a way, they were, they were literally just by philosophy, they were um, affirming the belief of Jews that there is one God because everything that we see in in this world is created and is in order. There's a cause and effect. There's things of nature that we can actually observe. That's why there's science is because we can see and observe. And this is why science came from Christianity is because we can see like there's one God and he created everything in this order so we can see a cause and effect. But science answers how, but it doesn't answer why. And so when we get into theology, we see the why. But regardless, the whole point is that both philosophically, there's this transcendent God who doesn't need anything. If he needed something, then we're not talking about God. And same thing biblically through uh, revelation, that God has revealed himself, that so high above the heavens are his ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. (laughs) But yet, He's also very near, and we'll talk about that in the incarnation. But so he's utterly transcendent. He's utterly, utterly other. We cannot fathom because we are people with physical limitations for one. We're physical beings, but also 
we cannot concept the reality of eternity. We don't know what that means or looks like. But God is this uncaused cause, right? So everything in this world, all of creation, all of universe had a had a point where it came into being. The person who started that is God. He doesn't have a time. He doesn't have uh, a changes and all these things. So, but when we, so he doesn't need anything at all. And again, the pagan gods, they needed stuff. They, so that's why uh, when Jesus says like, do not pray as the Gentiles do or the pagans do when they babble, because they had to convince their, their gods. So if you think back to, I think it was Elijah, um, when he was uh, going against the, the prophets of Balaam, there was like hundreds of them and they had to work all day long in order to convince their dead God who doesn't actually exist to try to do something. And all Elijah had to do was have trust and faith and just ask and, and, uh, the sacrifice was consumed. I think I have all that story correct. But the point is, is that our God doesn't need anything, but when we look at the Old Testament, we hear about how God had, he was angry or he repented or he had wrath and all of those things. Those are human language to describe the reality of our deficiencies in comparison with God. So we're trying, the the biblical authors are writing in their context and their human ways, and they are trying to describe our, the, the differences between God's justice, his goodness, his love, his truth versus ours. And so when we are not doing something good, we are doing something that is, uh, you know, it's missing that reality of goodness and therefore it doesn't have God in it. And that's why we call things disordered or evil because it doesn't have the natural order towards, you know, the purpose for uh, an act or speaking or whatever it might be is ordered towards. So if that's some, the goodness is lacking, it's bad. And so, uh, again, the biblical authors are describing in their own human language the really just our differences between God. Like uh, when we're not acting justly, well, we're offending the very eternal, unchanging justice of God. When we're not acting good, we're we're not in accord with the eternal, unchanging goodness of God, who is goodness itself. So even when we think of like we give God the glory, when we bring God glory, we're not adding to him. As it, because if if we could then add anything to God, we're no longer talking about God. But through His creation, He makes His His glory known, and He shares in His glory and life and love. And so we, um, and even especially in the Christian life, we are supposed to be shine our light towards others so they can glorify God in heaven. So we are part of revealing God's glory, His life, His goodness, and we. But we only do that through participation. Like we do not have all those things on our own. So really, even when we talk about like the glory of God, when we say give all, all, all the glory to God, whatever it might be, we're not adding anything to God. We're actually, God, in, in all reality, God's glory is being added to humanity and not humanity to God. And so it is not a reciprocal relationship like we're giving anything to God, but God is giving us, thing, uh, us everything uh, by participation in his very nature. So when we think about, okay, what can we give back to God? Really, all that we can ever give back to God is ourselves, is all of creation, because all of creation is from him. He created everything out of goodness, beauty, truth, and love. And so it belongs to him, not only that, but also its proper order is back to him because he is goodness itself. We can find no other transcendent good other than 
God who is love and goodness itself. So everything is found in him by participation. So for us to give anything back to him is just our very selves and very all of creation. And it's actually the greatest good for our happiness too, because we're all seeking goodness and truth and beauty. And yet he has all those things in himself. So when we get to the incarnation, the eternal son of God, who is fully divine, the, when I say eternal son of God, this is the Trinity, father, son, Holy Spirit revealed in Jesus that there is one God, three persons, father, son, Holy Spirit, all distinct from each other. They are fully God. Uh, you know, the father is fully God. The son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God, meaning that they are omnipresent, omniscient, all powerful, all knowing and, and uh, unchangeable. And yet they are distinct from each other by relationship. So the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They're all distinct from each other. So the that second person of the Blessed Trinity, the eternal Son or the eternal Word, is fully divine. And when he took on human flesh, he did not lose his divinity, nor did his, because a lot of, really, even after becoming Catholic, I don't think I fully understood what the incarnation was, that God assumed human flesh. So then when I hear that, that God became man, I think a lot of people, at least for me, I was picturing like his divinity was shoved into a human body. And so therefore, like, like we say, God came down from heaven. It, it sounds like the language in English sounds like he literally, his divinity is no longer omnipresent, no longer all powerful, no longer all knowing. But the eternal son's divinity was not shoved into his finite human body. So, because if that were the case, then he wouldn't cease to be God and therefore he was never God. And, um, but Jesus, the eternal word, when he took on human flesh, his, his divinity was still holding all of creation in his hands. His divinity was still omnipresent, still all powerful, still all knowing. Um, but his humanity was in one place in one time. And this is why it's so crucial that happened in the Middle Ages when it, at church councils when there was, Trinitar- there was Trinitarian heresies but also Christological heresies that people were saying, well, Jesus isn't truly divine or he's not truly man. No, it's 100% both. He's fully God and fully man. Oh, but he only has, uh, he, he has, so then he's two different people. He's the divine person and he's also the human person, the Christ. Nope, he's one divine person that assumed a human flesh. So he's one person. Oh, but he has one will. Nope, he has a human will and a divine will. So all of these things are Christological heresies. Um, the, those, those beliefs that I just uh, spoke about. But so the eternal son, his divinity, still there, still omnipresent, still uh, all-knowing. But his humanity is in one place in one time. He entered into, he, he entered into time and space and history. He, his divinity transcended of time and history, even though he's still involved in it. But even he took on in the fullness of time, a human body. He assumed human flesh. So his divinity still completely there. He's still omnipresent, still everywhere, still all knowing, still all powerful. And yet he, that same divine person took on a human flesh and that human flesh was created and it was in time and space. It took on the very nature of of God. So um, in Hebrews 10.5, we're going to be camping out in this incarnation part in Hebrews quite a bit. But in Hebrews 10.5, actually we'll back up to 10.4, talking about the sacrifices of old and being, um, so it says, for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have no desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
And so, and he came to do his will. So here in the fullness of time in salvation history, God became man. And actually at the very beginning of that same chapter, chapter 10 in Hebrews, the very, very first verse, it says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Because the entire letter to the Hebrews is all about how everything in the old covenant is fulfilled, heightened, and actually brought into reality by the new covenant in Jesus, this God becoming man. Now we actually enter into the Holy of Holies. It enters into this heavenly sanctuary. It is a, a real priesthood. It is a, a real sacrifice. It actually does take away sins. He actually does heal. He actually does bring up the, into the divine life because everything in the Old Testament was purely a copy and a shadow of the things to come. So they were trying to copy and mimic what would happen in heaven. But now we actually are participating in the heavenly worship through the Eucharist, through this body that God has prepared for Jesus to take on in the fullness of time. So a body you prepared for me, God taking on human flesh in the fullness of time to actually take away sins in order for us to be fully united, God and humanity. So, and not only this, does he take on a body, but he takes on all that humanity is. And so uh, Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make expiation for the sins of the people. For, for because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. And so not only does he take on a body, but he says that he was made like his brethren in every respect. Humans are human body and soul. Jesus, when he took on humanity, he has a real human body. He has a real human mind. He has a real human soul. Everything that we have, he took on. And in Hebrews 4.15, it says this, For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so here, the author of the Hebrews is making clear that it goes even further than God even becoming human, but he's actually been tempted in every single way like we have, and yet without sinning. And so he takes on a body, he takes on a soul, he takes on all of humanity, and he's also subject to temptation like we are. And this is so important to know because what isn't assumed by God is not redeemed. So Jesus took on all that we are to all of who he is. He is the only one that can reconcile creature and creator as he in himself is both God and man. Because he is the God-man, meaning that he is fully divine and fully human, he is God and creature. And when he takes on the human creature, he takes on all of it, human body and soul. And this is why it's so important to know that because what isn't assumed by Jesus isn't redeemed, but he assumed everything, body, soul, and even our temptations. And yet he does it perfectly without sinning. So Jesus purchased us with a price. Jesus purchased us with a price, but that price wasn't a price that God was looking for. Like I have this dollar amount in mind and someone needs to pay it. In other words, the price wasn't a price God was looking for to be made whole, but he gave his divinity to our humanity, to give us what was impossible for us to pay because we owe him eternity. So eternity became finite 
to bring the finite to eternity. So let me say that again. We owe him eternity because that's who he is. So we can't give back, like even all of creation back to him isn't really enough, especially broken creation. So eternity became finite to bring the finite to eternity. God became, in other words, God became man to bring man to God. And in Hebrews 2, 7, it says that God made Jesus, referring to Jesus, made him less than the angels for a little while, meaning that God, the eternal one who created angels, became man who are inferior to angels because angels were superior to men, especially because through the fall, a fallen angel, Satan, um, deceived us and we sold ourselves into slavery and into the power of sin and death. And God, who is eternal and created angels, became a human being who was under that power of sin and death and under the lies and deception of the devil. He took on human flesh, that broken human flesh, to destroy these works of the devil so that men would become greater than angels because God, because then God would live in human beings because God became man. So now, us as human beings, with the power of Jesus in us, risen up to the div- very divine life of God, we are, St. Saint, Saint Paul says that we're going to judge angels and that we become greater than the angels. And the angels are entertained by us, unaware, and we're unaware of that. And so that this very uh, life of God, this divine nature that took on human flesh, would take on and our human flesh as well, so that the power of sin and death, these works of the devil, would be destroyed here and now in our lives. And so, because God took on a body, we can say also that we ourselves are a living sacrifice because Jesus' divine life is in us. Jesus is a living sacrifice, so we become living sacrifices, actually offering back ourselves attached to Jesus and his divine nature to give back to God. And so again, like we give all ourselves back, like it's just fallen human nature. And yet God took on eternal, eternity took on human flesh, this finite reality, so that us could be taken up to divine divinity and now actually become, when we say a sacrifice before, now in Jesus, it's a living sacrifice to give everything back to God. And it's not a sacrifice. Yes, we might lose something, but it's only to gain uh, all the things that our hearts were made for, love, goodness, beauty, and truth in its fullness, who is found fully in God. And this is why even in Colossians 1.24, St. Paul says that he can rejoice in his sufferings for the sake of the church to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ's afflictions were not lacking in himself, but he wants us to be participating in that very life-giving love that he has poured upon us in the Holy Spirit so that we can be partakers of the divine nature. So, when we think of sin, sin, when it gets so much attention, and it should, because it leads to death, and this is what the humanity is enslaved to and under the power of, but sin is a issue. It's a, it's in the way of the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal that God wants in his purpose is for us to be in union with him. Sin is in the way of that. So he deals with it. He takes on human flesh. He destroys the works of the devil. He destroys the power of sin and death in our lives to make it possible for us to live in freedom. And, but that's, that's the secondary issue. But the whole goal of that 
is so that for us to be united to God himself. And so the summary of the whole incarnation is that Jesus lifted us up. He didn't bring God down like as like he he uh, brought down divinity. <laughs> um, no, he took on a human flesh in order to fill us with his divine life and to bring us up as opposed to him coming down to bring God down to be like us, which he did in the flesh. But it was for the purpose of we are being created in his likeness, not him in our likeness. So he took on flesh so that he can transform humanity into the, into the divine likeness, not changing divine likeness into humanity. We are created in his image and likeness. And so he took on our image and likeness for us to become like his image and likeness and his divine nature. One thing here that I'll, we'll pause though, just to clarify and to point out, is the great and unfathomable humility of God. So his divine nature, he didn't lose his divine nature. Divine nature wasn't hurt. Divine nature didn't have feelings. But when that divine nature assumed a human flesh, that human flesh did feel feelings, did have emotions, did have thoughts, and had all of these things that a human being does. And so by even taking on our nature, this utterly transcendent God that needs nothing, that is fully sufficient on himself, by himself, and completely happy by himself, but even that is a great mystery of the Trinity that when I say by himself, I'm referring to the one God, but it's three persons. So the one God is a family of persons sharing in communal love. So when I say by himself, he's really not by himself because the whole revelation of the Trinity is that God is love. And so for all eternity, that is exactly what God is through and through. And God is love and love is to be given and to receive. And so this beautiful revelation of the Trinity that, that Christ came to give us is this one God, three persons, eternal family, eternal love itself, in complete blessedness. And the true God, Holy Trinity, one God, three persons, love itself, out of love for us, created everything for us to share in that love. And and yet he doesn't need anything. And yet he goes to, and he takes on human flesh, this finite little uh, just part of the universe. And he brings on uh, flesh. So that's uh, humbling already, but also the great, the, in, uh, the great hymn of Philippians 2, where it talks about the humility of God. And we'll say it right here is that, that Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, because he, he's a divine person, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so here, this great humility, not only did God take on human flesh in Jesus, but Jesus went to the cross and even died a shameful, humiliating, naked death that looked like a failure. And yet St. Paul calls it the wisdom and the power of God, <laughs> that he would take on our flesh and he would enter fully into our shame, our brokenness, our, our sins and our death. He would take that fully upon himself and our human nature and fully redeem it as the divine person that he is. And so when I mean that divinity didn't change and divinity didn't come down, that's true. But even that divine person took on human flesh so that when we see Jesus in human flesh, we can say God, <laughs> because it's a divine person who took on human flesh. And not only that, but he would come and die on a cross for us. We'll be bathed in that love and trying to further understand that for all of eternity that we look at love it's love himself and that we shall be like him because we will see him as he is on the other side of the veil but even here and now 
we begin to search even the depths of God by the grace of the Spirit, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, that it is the Spirit of God that searches the mind of God, and in us as lifted up into that divine life, he reveals to us that, that beautiful mystery of love. And so that's what's having the mind of Christ is, is that even in our human flesh, we begin to think divine ways. We are seated in heavenly places. We think the thoughts of heaven, and we bring heaven to earth. We participate in that new creation that Christ died for and took on human flesh for. And so now the next part we're going to talk about is fitting versus necessary. And the first thing to say is that it was not totally necessary for God to do the things that he did, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God did not have to take on a human flesh. He did not have to die on a cross. He did not have to be born of a woman. He did not have to do any of those things to forgive us. He could have just snapped his fingers, forgave us, whatever. But Christ says that it was necessary for the Son of Man to to suffer and to die and to rise again. But why does he say necessary? He's saying it's necessary because it's attached to salvation history. Because it's the fulfillment of all of uh, the revelation of the old covenant that was our foreshadow of the fullness of revelation in Jesus that God so loved the world <laughs> that he would take on our human flesh to bring us up into his divine life. So it's necessary in the, to- in, the, in the point of salvation history, but it is not necessary that God did all of that. And so when God made promises to Abraham and he made covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, uh, Moses, and David, and he had the prophets all of these, all of these uh, realities of the Old Covenant, they were fulfilled in Christ. All of these things. And so it is fitting that he did this. Not totally necessary. But actually, it's so beautiful that he did this. It's so fitting of the Old Covenant. And it's necessary of Old Co- Covenant salvation history for the Messiah. But um, he did not have to do this. And... Even the incarnation, he didn't have to do it, but it's fitting that he would do this, that he would take on our human flesh so that, because all of human history, all of salvation history is God using, speaking through creation, his love to his people. And in the fullness of time, it's not just signs and symbols anymore, but God takes on human flesh. So, and same thing with even after the incarnation, but the crucifixion, God did not have to do that. Jesus did not have to do that in order to forgive us, and yet he does, and it's fitting. And it's Jesus that saves us, and the same thing, like Je- Jesus saves us, but it's through the cross. It's not the cross that saves us, but it's Jesus through the cross. And Jesus actually even refers to his passion, his 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 uh, passion on the cross, as his baptism. And so when we think about even the fittingness, uh, think about Jesus' baptism, his baptism, when he comes to uh, the the Jordan River with John the Baptist, his cousin, and, he sa- and John the Baptist rightly says, like, you don't need to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you because he knows that people, Jesus, who is God himself, doesn't need to be baptized because baptism is for confession of sins and to be risen up to new life. But Jesus says it's to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus didn't need to be baptized, but he's baptized, why? To sanctify the waters so that when we enter into the baptism of the waters, we actually are forgiven of our sins, given brand new life in the Holy Spirit, and we are risen with Christ because our baptism in the water points to his baptism and his passion. We are dead with Christ and we are raised with him um, in baptism. Same thing with the Eucharist. It's not necessary, but it is fitting with all salvation history. 
he fulfills the very he what closed the eyes of Adam and Eve were eating and he fulfills that it was um, it was the Passover meal that they ate with the lamb it was the manna from heaven that they ate in the wilderness and Christ fulfills all that it was the bread of the presence that they kept in the tabernacle and Christ fulfills all that and it's not something that that we do all of these things it's something that we simply receive salvation we receive by the incarnation and the crucifixion and it's something that we receive Jesus through baptism and it's Jesus that we receive through the Eucharist and St. St. Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians that he what he received from the Lord and then he goes into the Eucharistic discourse so he's saying the Eucharist is something that he received from the Lord and he gives to us so it's not something that we do it's something that we receive and this is another crucial point is that grace perfects nature grace does not destroy it grace perfects nature meaning that our nature created by God is all towards him he's not going to destroy what he created he's going to lift it up and heal it and fully redeem it so that we can participate in it perfectly and even when we think about prayer prayer people often ask uh, not me but just here in general is that people often ask like why do we need to pray if God knows exactly what we need not only is this a complete accurate statement that God knows what we need philosophy uh, you know just by the very nature of God himself God himself, but also Jesus says this, do not babble like the pagans. God knows what you need before you even ask. And yet Jesus in that very same breath tells us to pray, <laughs> tells us how to pray. And this is the the reality of, of God and his love for us is that he knows exactly what we need. And yet he wants a deep relationship with us. And it's not even a relationship. It's a union with him, which only comes through prayer, through dialogue, through a beautiful intimacy with him. And so even in our relationship with God, is it necessary that we pray in order for him to figure out what we want? No, he knows everything, but it's necessary for us. And it's fitting that this would be the reality because relationships are not uh, made and knowledge is not communicated without uh, a giver and a receiver. (laughs) And so God calls us to also be giving and receiving in this relationship with him, with his very uh, divine life of love. And that's the beauty of of God's love for us. And that's why prayer in Jesus is so powerful because it is the God-man. It is God himself and man. And so when humans are in him, we become partakers of the divine nature. We become one flesh with him, as St. Uh, Paul says, and we become his body, just as, as the bride and the bridegroom are one body and one flesh. It's that beautiful intimacy. And so and this only happened through the incarnation that God would take on human flesh. And so this is why it's so beautiful and powerful to meditate for the rest of our lives to try to understand even a sliver of the incarnation. And so when we think about the incarnation, like we said before, his divinity still omnipresent everywhere. And yet his humanity was confined to one place and one time. And even now, his humanity is in heaven. So his humanity is, even right now, his humanity is in heaven, in one place. And so right now, the eternal son, his divinity is omnipresent, his humanity in one place. So the Eucharist, this is why Jesus gave us this gift also, is that he makes present his body and blood in time and space here and now, because his body that was prepared for him, as Hebrews said, and that he took on is in one place. So 
through the Eucharist, he makes a tangible reality of his presence, his, hu- his human presence and his divine presence in a particular way, not taking away from his omnipresence, but he gives it to his body and his blood to us in the Eucharist in a powerful way so that we would actually be lifted up in heavenly places with Jesus. And this is why the letter of Hebrews chapter 12 talks about how that in the Eucharist, through this uh, flesh of Jesus, we actually become up into the heavenly Jerusalem with all the angels and all the saints. And we are there present in this throne, uh, in the actual holy of holies in heaven, not made with human hands. And so when we think about heaven too, we had an entire episode on that, but God is not in heaven. Heaven is in God. (laughs) Like God's not confined to heaven. Heaven is in God. But Jesus's humanity is in heaven and it's the temple, it's the light, he's everything in heaven. He's the center, he's the center. And he makes that reality known and in, and a reality here on earth through the Eucharist that he gave us. And even when we think about when Jesus died, it says that the curtain, the temple, the veil was torn in two. A lot of people take that like the temple was torn, like we don't, we can worship God anywhere and everywhere. God was omnipresent before the temple torn. And the Jews knew that. They prayed outside. Jesus prayed outside. Everybody prayed outside the temple. The temple was a special place where God was worshipped and they went into the Holy of Holies where his sacred presence was made known in a very real way that he revealed to the people. So the temple being torn in two didn't make God omnipresent or else he wouldn't be God. God was everywhere (laughs) at all times, all-knowing, and you could pray to him anywhere. All of the uh, people in the Old Testament prayed outside the temple. So when the temple was torn in two, it's because the old covenant sacrifices were done away with. The old covenant priesthood was done away with. That old covenant division between Jews and Gentile was done away with because there is a veil that would keep the Gentiles outside if they wanted to to worship um, worship the Jewish God. And then the Jews could go inside, but also there was only one person that could go into the Holy of Holies once a year, and that was the high priest, and that was done once a year. But those are all shadows of the things that were reality. And as Colossians 2 says, all those shadows are the substance of those realities belong to Christ. And so Christ in his flesh now makes all those a reality. And Hebrews 10 uh, verse 20 and I'll read around it as well, but refers to that curtain that was torn at the temple when he died was his was his flesh. And so this is what it says in uh, Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts cl- sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and, may, and our bodies washed with pure water. And so here the author to the Hebrews both has baptism, baptismal and Eucharistic imagery because now we actually enter into the real Holy of Holies through the Eucharist that is Christ's flesh. And he is our true high priest. He establishes the, the true priesthood. He actually unites Gentile and Jew. It's for every single person. He breaks down that wall of... Uh, offering sacrifices over and over, day after day and year after year in the Holy of Holies. Jesus, the high priest, the true Lamb of God, enters once and for all. And yet he offers that uh, to all of us in the same sacrifice through the Eucharist. So the substance belongs to Jesus. So everything 
such as the sacrifices in the Old Covenant, were signs and symbols, but Jesus uses signs and symbols that make everything real. So he still used sacramental signs just in the Old Covenant. Like people were saved through water. People were saved through uh, um, manna from heaven. All of these signs and symbols, they're Passover lambs and uh, the temple and the tabernacle. All these were signs and symbols that God used. He used water. He used oil. He used all the things that are still used today. But now it's a reality in Jesus. Jesus did not stop using signs and symbols and just come to this spiritual life. (laughs) Uh, And a lot of Christians kind of treat Christianity like that. But Jesus, in the fullness of time, became the true sacrament. He took on human flesh. And God, in human flesh, still used signs and symbols and tangible things. He used nature. He used creation in order to to work his grace. He literally took his spit and put it into mud and healed a blind man. He used his tassel. He used all these things that he did in order to show forth his his divinity, his grace, and his healing that he came to give. And God can and does heal and work miracles apart from touching any physical thing. But he also primarily worked in his revelation through tangible signs until he took on the fullness in Jesus Christ in human flesh and he used these uh, physical things in in order to communicate his grace. And so, for example, this kind of tying in both how Jesus fulfills everything in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament were just a mere shadow, but also how he uses actual tangible things he touches. A lot of people could have been healed, and yet Jesus went to actually had to, he went there as a human being. He went there in order to heal. When the man that was uh, filled with leprosy, leprosy was a uh, unclean ritual disease, so it could not go into the town and he had to announce that this person was unclean. It was a huge issue of shame. And yet the man filled with leprosy comes as, if you will it, you can heal me. And he says, I do will it, be healed. And then go show yourself to the high priest and uh, give a sacrifice that is in accord with the law of Moses. And that sacrifice was two birds. One would be killed, another would be dipped in its blood and set free, symbolizing freedom. And so we see here that Jesus literally touched this person, this this leper who was unclean, and healed him and made him clean. And so now he could go back into it. And the sacrifice of these two birds symbolized just as in, in shadow form what Jesus ultimately literally does. These two birds couldn't take away sin. These two birds couldn't heal. These two birds couldn't um, forgive sin. And yet Jesus, he literally heals. He literally sets this man free. He literally unites him back into his form of worship, back to the temple. So Jesus, in the fullness of time, took on human flesh, healed and by physically touching people in order to actually heal, to actually liberate, to actually forgive, to actually uh, unite us back into one. And so God perfects nature. He doesn't work apart from it. He doesn't destroy it. He doesn't despise it. He works through it. He takes nature. He brings brings uh, we what we bring to the table. He takes. Okay, if uh, hey you have bread, you have wine. I'll transform it. You have water. I'll transform it. He takes what we have. We bring what we have. What he's given us ultimately, because God is the creator of all things. So he gives everything as a gift, and we give it back to him, and he transforms it, and he trans- transforms water into wine. He transforms transforms our humanity into the very divine life of God by participation. And we're going to be, we're, and you can already see how 
when we talk about Jesus, we very naturally move into the reality of the church and the sacraments. But we'll get that to that even more in a second. But <clears throat> this reality of the eternal Son of God taking on human flesh, lifting up humanity, and doing these things, this is why in the Catholic worldview, and we've had a whole episode about this, are you saved, and what that means. <clears throat> but in the Catholic worldview, it is ludicrous. It is ridiculous to ever ever think that anybody could earn salvation or do anything to be saved because it's impossible. We literally do not have anything in our power or means to do it. We have nothing in our power to overcome sin. We have nothing in our power to not die. <laughs> this is, you, you cannot earn it. And even apart from that, those are the secondary things. But the, the one thing that is the objective goal is to be united with goodness, beauty, truth, and love himself, which is God. And only God can unite us because even if we weren't broken, let alone being broken, it's only by his grace. And it is so this God man, the the eternal son of God, fully God, still retaining all of his divinity, takes on human flesh and lifts up humanity. So it's ridiculous. It doesn't even make sense to even fathom that because in the Catholic worldview is in the fullness of time, we're going to be fully glorified, united, and perfect love itself. We can't do that on our own. And again, we had an entire episode on on this, so hopefully it's clear by this point. But in the Catholic Christian worldview, you can't work to do anything. And so when a Catholic talks about works, we're talking about the good works that we are created for in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 2.10 says, that it is literally us being united to Christ. It's his work that makes anything good. Take, for example, in Philippians 2.13, For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 15.10, St. Paul says that, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. In Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So in all these ways, and especially like St. Paul who continues on about uh, not living according to the flesh, but living according to the Spirit, those are all things that are by the grace of God, Jesus, his life in us, Holy Spirit, his life in us that continues the work of Jesus. And so when we talk about works, it's the work of Jesus that we were made for, that we were created for, that we were supposed to be participating in to fully uh, reveal the Father and continue the work of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit that continues the work of God bringing his children home. So again, grace perfects nature. And this work of Jesus is not something external to us. It is The very work of Christ, some people believe that the work of Christ, he did for us, so we didn't have to do. No, Christ's work, and it's very clear in Jesus' teaching and the apostles, Jesus' work, what he did is for us, and so that he would give us the power to not only model him, but his work would be continued in us. It's an internal transformation. It's his work in us. So God became because if it was all external then god became man for really nothing he could have just forgiven us but no he took on our humanity he became all things like so he could call us our brothers because he became in every respect just like us so he came to transform us interiorly that's the power of his grace and so when he crowns our merits at the end of life it is as the catechism says in 2000 paragraph 2006 it says that he's crowning his own gifts Why? Because any work that we do, it is by the divine love and grace and the life of God that is living in us. 
So again, even when we talk about works, even when we talk about meriting, it is our free will choice to allow the Holy Spirit to work within us, to cooperate with his grace, but it's still his grace. It's still his works, but we just participate in. St. Paul, he, uh, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, he says that we have been co-laborers with Christ. And the Greek word for co-labor is literally, I forget how to pronounce it, but it's like synergoi. And that's where we get synergy. It's two entities, two freedoms coming together as one. And so we co-labor with Christ. We co-labor with God. Why? Because it's two freedoms. It is not exterior to us. It's interior. This is the reality of a relationship, reality of union, the reality of the intimacy that Christ died for so that we'd become one flesh with him just as a bridegroom and a bride come one flesh and one mind and one spirit and and one will together. That's what we are to become. This is what Christ died for is so that we would have the life of God in us. So when we talk about works and we talk about merits, it's not our human works. It's our human works attached to divine grace. He's lifted up humanity. This entire episode has been about this. He doesn't bring uh, God down just to keep uh, God down. He brings, he takes on human flesh to lift humanity up into himself. And so grace perfects nature. Same thing when we talked about purgatory. He didn't just come to show off his power and leave us where we are. C.S. Lewis, he said like, how sad and unthinkable that Christ died for us and brought us to heaven, but we were still unclean, broken, dirty, and unhealed. That is life without purgatory at the end of time. If we fall in love with Jesus, we stay in love with Jesus, and we're not totally healed yet the way that God wants us fully alive, that's the very work of Christ in purgatory, is his work in Christ to transform us. He doesn't leave us where we are. He came to fully to make us fully alive, to be fully redeemed, fully healed, and to be fully set free and for freedom to be authentically and freely loving each other wholeheartedly. That is what God came to do, is to not leave us external to ourselves or not unhealed. He came so that we would have an interior transformation in this life, Christ's life in us now, and at the end of time. It's all about lifting humanity up. And so that's what, when we talk about Jesus's uh, taking on his divinity, taking on human flesh, lifting up everything uh, of humanity into the divine life and um, the works that we do in Christ, all those things put together, it's because it's humanity is lifted up in Jesus. It's kind of the whole point of this entire episode. But also, so that's the life of Christ, but also the sacramental life. So, Uh, I was talking to some uh, good fundamental Protestant friends uh, of mine and they were saying, yeah, baptism, it's a command of the Lord, so we need to do it, but it doesn't actually save you. Well, first off, 1 Peter 3.21, baptism does now save you and Jesus speaks about it, saving us. St. Paul talks about us actually being uh, dying with Christ and rising to new life with him and walking in accord with the Spirit after baptism. All of these things are very clear. Check out Titus, it literally lays out the teachings of baptism that we have been cleansed and lifted up into righteousness and to justification and be being regenerated in the spirit. That's all baptism. But the whole point is this unsacramental view of what Christ came to do. So he's saying like, hey, baptism, yeah, we should do it, but it doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't give us grace. It doesn't save us. Nothing. We don't need baptism. We don't need the Eucharist. We don't need all those external things. But God's commands are not burdensome. (laughs) What I mean by that is that God doesn't command us to do something that actually doesn't do anything. God is a, is a, is a God of purpose. Every single thing that he tells us to do 
is filled with grace, with his very divine life. Even the very first proclamation of what Jesus tells us to do, repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is a gift. Every single thing to change our minds to the ways of God from past sins and brokenness and destruction and self-destruction and pride, be turned to God. That is a grace. Repentance and belief are graces. As St. Paul says in Romans, that it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. So St. Paul is clear that God is the first mover. He's the first actor. He's the first person who loves and acts and seeks and finds. And he is the one that is always moving, moving towards us and moving us with grace, by his grace, toward the goodness, the beauty, and the truth, and the, and the good. And even speaking about love, in the first letter of John, John says that we love because he first loved us. While we, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, St. Paul says. And so this entire reality is that God moves first. It's everything from him to him and through him that we are made whole, we are healed, we are fully redeemed, we are given uh, life and truth and love. And even the belief itself in the person of Jesus Christ is a miracle because every single faith is a gift. And because faith comes through hearing and hearing is the word of Christ, hearing the word of Christ. And so faith is a gift. Faith is exterior to us. We receive it. It's something that we've been given by Christ. So faith and repentance, repentance and faith are a miracle and a gift by the grace of God. Baptism, it is the grace of God. The Eucharist, it is a grace of God. St. Paul, again, what I have received from the Lord Jesus, I give to you. The night he was betrayed, he took bread and he took wine. Eat this, this is my body, and so on. It's a, something that we receive. Why? Because God has lifted up all of humanity in Jesus. In Jesus taking on human flesh, he continues that work. He literally told somebody that your sins are forgiven. And he still says that today. When he tells us to pray fast, give alms, to abide in, in his word, to have vo- beautiful vocal prayer and meditation and contemplation, to be able to rejoice in sufferings or persecution, he's not saying those things just to, yeah, you should do them. No, he's saying, I will give you the grace to do it and in it, I will. Th- there will be grace. And in it, you will find grace and you will find freedom in all these ways and intimacy with me. He, his commands are not burdensome. They're not external things that we just do to show off because he didn't come to do that. He came to transform us, to give his divine life in us. So we do all those, we do all those sacraments because he told us to do it. But also it's because that's exactly the life that he gave. He took on human flesh and now he speaks in sacramental ways because he became the sacrament itself, the, the image of God, the symbol of God. But symbol doesn't mean not real. He had a real human body and he was really God. <laughs> And he still is really God. And this is why he finds, he founded one church to be a part of. And a part of that life is, yes, uh, obviously, prayer and intimacy with God. But it's precisely from and to the, the sacraments that we know objectively, yes, I encountered Jesus. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to guess. And that's the exact same way that Christ works now. Through sacramental signs, he, the church, speaks the, the words of Jesus. I baptize you, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I absolve you of all your sins. These are the words of Jesus because it's the grace of the Holy Spirit continuing the work of Jesus here on this earth so that when we go to baptism and we go to confession, we go to the Eucharist, I have no doubt in my mind. Jesus just forgave me. I do not have to doubt. Just as he spoke to that man, your sins are forgiven. Rise, take up your mat, and go home. He said to the woman caught in adultery, does anybody condemn you? I do not condemn you. Rise and do not sin again. He gives us the grace and he actually speaks so that we have no 
uh, that we have full assurance that we do not have to second guess or think or work up any sort of feeling like, oh, I've been forgiven. Oh, he, act, you know, maybe the life of Christ is in me. No, it is because exactly what he told us to do gives us grace, his very divine life and love to give us the power to overcome sin and death and temptation and to live a life in true radical freedom. So this is the sacramental reality of all salvation history. Again, just to recap is it's, it's especially in the incarnation, right? At the very beginning, he created all of the entire universe. So creation, he spoke his word and it became in physical human ways. It became, he spoke through historical events, through salvation history until the very fullness of time. He took on in the incarnation, a human body that communicated with and through matter. And even looking at, again, the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, it says this, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And the church, through Christ's divine power, speaks the words of Christ that communicate grace. No doubts. <laughs> and so, he took on human flesh, and he uses matter just like using spit and clay to heal. And that was a symbol of baptism because of the recreation of the old Adam. He's giving us new life in baptism as after, after he heals the man uh, blind with spit and clay, he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he was healed after that moment. And so Jesus, in, in the waters of baptism, he recreates us. We're, we're with that new Adam. We're with the old water. And yet in baptism, through his baptism and the passion and his passion of, of his blood, he pours out for us in our baptism, we enter into that so that the old Adam is stripped away and the, the new Adam and, and Jesus is fully alive. We're healed. We can see again. And so he speaks to us in our mode as human beings so we can understand and receive. There is zero benefit if God speaks, speaks, and speaks, but we cannot understand because he's speaking in ways that we can't understand. And even when we speak about revelation of or, or how God has revealed himself, God has revealed himself through history. Yes, it is recorded in an inspired and errant word of God that we encounter God. And actually, the, the, and we're talking about scripture, of course, and the church teaches um, that the Holy Spirit breathes on us, breathes on us in when we read scripture. And it's a beautiful place to encounter God. But when we don't understand the context, one, it might have not any meaning to us. We have to know the history and the story, and these are real events. And so, but what he's saying, what he said about revelation, if there's revelation contained in a book, it's not revelation yet because revelation has to have a receiver. So there's a giver of revelation and there's a receiver of, of revelation. And that's why the church is feminine is because we receive truth. We receive the word of God. We receive the life of God. And this is why the church is called the bride of Christ, spoken of as like a woman. And this is the very grace of the church because the church is, is a receiver of grace. The church is the bride of Christ who receives the word. And so it's not something that's worked up by human beings in order to become a great church. No, we are broken human beings. That's why we have sin still in the church. This is why we have the weeds in the church as uh, Jesus talks about in Matthew 13. There's the weeds and the wheat. And yet weeds are still in the church because there's broken human beings. And yet the church is a divine institution because it's founded in Jesus and it's the bride of Jesus and it's united to Jesus. And it's the very life, the church is the very life of Jesus that we, we receive totally by grace. And so that's why 
it is the bride of Christ receiving the word, not working something up to become something something that it's not or becoming uh, like trying to pride up anything. No, we receive in humility. And that's the reality of the nature of revelation itself, that there's a giver and a receiver. And yet Christ himself gave us a receiver so that it would actually receive and understand the word and to be led into all truth. And so Jesus says it's the church that would be led into all truth. This is what makes St. Paul talk about the church being the bride of Christ, one in Christ, and also being the fullness of Christ, and also the the pillar and the bulwark of truth. Not because we have it out of pride or something that we found, it's been something that we've been given by God, by Jesus himself. And this is the great gift of the church. It's not something that we that we found. It's something that we've been given, that we receive. The church is something received by God so that we can have now a, an infallible receiver, <laughs> someone who actually receives and understands the word and communicates it. And it's infallible, so we never have to doubt. We hear Jesus. He, hear, he who hears you hears me, Jesus says. And so Christ took on human flesh, so that he could fully communicate his love to us and that we could even have a grasp of understanding, but also to be transformed inside out as he took on our humanity. And this is why Pope John Paul II says that Jesus, he, his, he is the divine face of man and the human face of God. Because in him, not only does he reveal the Father, as Jesus says, as you see me, you see the Father, he reveals God, but he reveals us to us. He reveals the, the brokenness of sin, of the like his passion in us, for us, but he also reveals our unfathomable dignity and love of from God and for and what we're made for. And so he speaks to us in human ways and in sacramental ways so that we do not have to have any doubts that we just encounter the living God. So, and the church talks about this beautifully, about the the reciprocity between the faith and faith in the sacraments. Some people think that sacraments, they don't work. Like sacraments are magic. Like you just come and like they're supposed to work up in, inside of you. <clears throat> or other people are like, all you need is faith. You don't need the sacraments. The church, the faith, Jesus himself are all about both. You have to have both. Because what Jesus did in the fullness of time, he took on a human flesh and you had to have faith in order to receive anything from him. You couldn't just come testing him. So the church actually speaks about using the example from the Gospels of the woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. In that time, she was walking towards Jesus and she had faith that if I only touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And there are people all over him trying to touch him, trying to test him, see what I can get out of this guy. Let me see if, he's actually, if he can actually change my life. Let me see if he can do this. I'll just test him or just doing it for show, or just hearing about his fame, not actually wanting to be changed or to change change your life because that's what Christ's discipleship is, is a radical change of life. So this woman, she touches his garment and is healed. And Jesus notices this. Who's touched me? And the disciples rightly respond, what do you mean? All these people are touching you. Yeah, but she touched me with faith. And that's the exact same thing with the sacraments is we are 100% there regardless of anybody's faith. Jesus is really there regardless of anybody's faith. But coming with faith, just as this woman did, where just the hundreds or thousands of people just coming to press upon Jesus, we don't come to test him. We don't come just to hear about his fame. We don't come just as a, a you know a thing about signs and wonders. No, I come with faith. 
We come with faith to the sacraments. I believe, Jesus, that you are going to radically change my life. And so I come to the Eucharist. I come to the sacrament of confession. And you are going to do something radical in my heart. And all this is talked about. Um, there's a beautiful document on the reciprocity between faith and sacraments. It's a church document. And um, I have a link to five episodes. The first four are actual going through that list. And the fifth one is going to just be like a Q&A. It's to uh, a podcast called Every Knee Shall Bow. It's an amazing podcast. I love these guys. Uh, Michael Gormley and Dave Van Vickle. This is um, through Ascension Press. It's one of their uh, you know ones that they promote. One of their, uh, and so the, these four really break down this document and exactly what we're talking about here, faith and sacraments and Christ becoming flesh and living a sacramental life. And so we have covered a lot. So let's do just a recap. We talked about God doesn't need anything. <laughs> um, and all that we could give back to God is ourselves. And in him is found our greatest good, happiness, peace, joy, and love, because he is all those things himself. Um, in the incarnation, God took on human flesh. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, remained fully divine, fully omnipresent, all-powerful, and yet he assumed a human flesh that was created in space and time. And we also talked about how the fitting versus necessary. God didn't need to do any of, the, any of this. It wasn't necessary, but it was fitting within salvation history that God would become man to take on our flesh, to lift us up into what he calls us to. And he fulfills all of the Old Testament uh, covenants. We didn't get into too much of this, but we've been through this so many times. Jesus is the new Adam. He fulfills the promises of Abraham. He's the son of David. He is um, the new Moses who brings the, the new manna from heaven. He brings a new law of love. He, he gives us the, the church, which is the new Israel founded upon Peter and the apostles and Peter as his prime minister, giving him the keys. He gives him the, the power to bind and loose. Not only does he give him the power to, but he gives him the promise of in, infallibility to Peter and the apostles. And then he uh, gives uh, Mary as our mother, the queen mother of the old covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. And that we go into battle to do battle with. So all of these things are fulfillments. The Eucharist, fulfillment. Baptism, fulfillment. Uh, all the sacraments, fulfillments. The church, a fulfillment. Mary, a fulfillment. <laughs> and so in that way, Christ was fitting for all of these things, but it was not necessary for what he did. And so, and we talked about how the substance belongs to Jesus. All those, all the old covenant realities or all old covenant shadows became a reality in Jesus. And so he takes us up into heaven. He, he brings us in grace, grace perfects nature because he lifts up humanity. And we talked about briefly talking about earning salvation and how that's just silly talk and ridiculous because what Christ gives us and promises us is something that we cannot do on our own. He gives us his very divine life. Can't work that up. He lifts up humanity. Can't do that. He destroys sin and death. Can't do that on our own. He does all of these things. Grace perfects nature. And it is something not external to us, but internal. He transforms us internally. And he makes us fully alive and he fully redeems us in this beautiful journey of love and life with Jesus. And then we talked about the sacramental reality of salvation history, all from creation throughout the new covenant, new covenants and the prophets and God speaking his love in ways of human ways and in the fullness of time. Not only did he speak through prophets, but he would speak through us through a son, the eternal son of God taking on human flesh. And he spoke to us as a man, the sacraments of sacraments. And then he spoke in sacramental ways and he used cre creation to heal and to speak. And he continues to do that today through his church that he gave us not on merits of our own, 
but by the very power of divine grace by the Holy Spirit to live a life. And so, and we talked the last about about faith in the sacraments and how we need to be like the woman who came to Christ with faith, even in the midst of these hundreds of thousands of people who just want to press upon him just to get something out of it that they want. But she comes with faith knowing that who he is and he notices it. That's the woman of faith. So come to the sacraments like that. And I have the links in the show notes too to the other show that I referenced. And then the next episode or two will again be kind of where all this started from is talking about uh, the views of penal substitution that Jesus Yes, he took our place, just to give you a foreshadow, but he did not take our place in the sense that the father poured out his wrath on Jesus or he, um, the father abandoned Jesus at the cross. So to conclude this, remember that God, out of his unfathomable love, literally did everything, his entire work, his entire abundance of love was totally entirely for you. Really nothing for himself <laughs> because you can't get better than God. <laughs> So he doesn't need anything. And yet out of his super abundance of love for us, he came. And not only did he speak to us and reveal to us his love, but he took on human flesh to lift us up, to fully heal us, to fully unite us, that in the fullness of time, the eternal son of God would say, a body you have prepared for me so that humanity can be lifted up into divinity and that he would become like us and like you and always, any way that you've been tempted, any ways that you've had struggles Jesus felt that. Jesus felt that struggle, yet without sinning. And now he gives us the power to overcome our temptations, overcome our sins, to put the death, the deeds of the flesh. And so we have this high priest who who knows our weaknesses, that was in our weaknesses, that knows our temptations, is able to uh, to relate to us. And so now we have confidence to approach the throne of grace because we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens and has lifted up humanity into the Holy of Holies to the temple with and the Holy of Holies without, made without human hands. And this is the God of glory, that his glory would be shown forth on the cross, that God would become man and die for you, to give you his divine life, to show you how much he loves you. And we'll end with this. In 1 Corinthians 1, St. Paul talks about how Jews demanded signs and Greeks seeked wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And in 1 Corinthians 2, that I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and the, and the power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glorification. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus is the Lord of glory. God need, needs nothing on his own. He is glory himself. And yet he is the Lord of glory who took on our human nature, our human flesh to fully redeem us, so that he would give his life fully to us in the most beautiful and sublime ways. And he works this out through his church still. The works of the Spirit are the continuing works of Christ here on earth. And so, you are radically loved. You're worth dying for. You're worth love. God took on human flesh and died for you because Christ, the Lord of glory, has given himself fully to you. So, we proclaim nothing other short than Jesus Christ, 
and him crucified. Thank you.